Berlin is very much at the center of the story when it comes to startup companies in Europe. And while it isn't the only place where interesting projects are taking root, it is arguably one of the most attractive and active places to start a business. And there's no shortage of data, case studies, navel-gazing that emphasizes what a unique position the city is in. Now, we often hear about the most popular types of startups, e-commerce, software, mobile applications. But also on that list, there's education healthcare, and what is known as social or social enterprises. It is among these three areas that we get to that well-known term, corporate social responsibility, which breaks down to the obvious yet somehow new idea that business should be carried out with a concern not only for profits, but also for impact on society. And you've heard it over and over again, especially in the last 10 years, from large and small corporations. It's among the more used and abused terms out there today. Now, never mind the buzz, never mind the marketing. The truth is, today in Berlin, within the startup world, there is a strong emphasis on running a business that does some good for the world. Spend any time talking to a founder or CEO of a startup in this town, chances are you will hear how they both meet their needs as a business and how they do something, how they have some impact in a community or in a society. And it often starts out their project, their company, with some social issue that they wanted to address through their work. Well, today on the program, we explore the Berlin for-profit, non-profit combination, or the dual goal of running a successful business while making a difference in society. And to do that, we bring you two experienced voices, from Source Fabric, Fabian Reiner, and from Toy Wheel and Game Wheel, Evgeny Kuris. They will help us describe what they see and how they navigate this combination in this town at this particularly interesting moment in history. From Wikimedia Deutschland, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, and this is Source Code Berlin. Source Fabric, a company that makes open source tools for making media, wasn't born in Berlin, but the city has now become an important hub for this interesting global organization. And among the things I was curious to learn about was how this group of people got started as both a nonprofit media education organization and a for profit software building company. It's a bit like the old riddle what came first, the chicken or the egg? My name is Fabienne Riener, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Source Fabric. So Source Fabric was set up in 2010, so we're just a little bit over five years old now. And we were set up as a nonprofit organization in the Czech Republic with the mission to support quality independent journalism around the world. So these were the origins and the two tools we had in the beginning. They were called CamSite and CamCaster. They're now New Scoop and Airtime. But these were the two initial projects, open source projects that we had in the team. And there was maybe 10, 15 people who were dotted around the world who were working on Campsite and Campcaster at the time or who were contributing to it. And around that idea to make this bigger and more successful and to share it with people around the world, Source Fabric was set up. So our three founders, they've been working together for probably about 20 years now, and they were working on media development projects. And this is also how they met. These were projects that were 
funded through the European Union, for example. And so they were working on the development of new tools and all of their hearts always was beating for open source, um, which, you know, 10 years ago was not so popular as it is today. And on, um, so the, the production of great tools in order to produce great content. And we started as a humble nonprofit organization five years ago with maybe 20 people or something in the beginning. And we grew quite quickly through working in the nonprofit sphere. Um, some, some of the work, a lot of the work that we were doing initially was completely on a pro bono basis. You know, there was people all over the world who needed our tools, who were some of them in a very desperate situation. Um, we've always been working in threshold countries where democracy is developing and hand in hand independent journalism is developing. So there's, you know, we've been working with people from the very get go when they got together as journalists to set up a news portal. So we've always been in this world, but very quickly there was interest from more commercial clients around the world as well, because the need for great tools doesn't only exist in the nonprofit world. And um, so we had people con um, contacting us and getting in touch with us from all over the world and from the whole nonprofit for-profit spe uh, for spectrum. And um, as I said, we've been a nonprofit organization from the get-go, but realistically speaking, you also need to diversify the way you can you know, you can build a sustainable organization in the future. And one of the ways we decided to do that was to set up a for-profit daughter company, which is 100% owned by the nonprofit, to be able to work with commercial clients and to charge commercial rates. But all of these profits that are generated through that work flows back into the nonprofit mother organization where our core code is being developed. And this enables us, the, the profits that we are generating through the for-profit activities enable us to keep developing the best open source code that we can possibly develop so that then other organizations around the world who haven't got the means to pay for these, for example, to pay for us to fly over and do some consultation and to build a great, you know, whatever it is, news portal, radio station, you know, we have so many different tools these days, but they can also benefit from our work through the profits that we can generate elsewhere. Using profits to help address those who cannot afford the tools. It is an idea that actually goes far back into history. In the late 1800s, the American industrialist Andrew Carnegie practiced what he called arm's length philanthropy. The idea that you make your fortune first and then give it away. More than a century later, these are perhaps the new Carnegies and Rockefellers of our world. Perhaps not as relatively wealthy as the Americans of that era, and no longer busy building libraries or universities, but these modern business activists are doing it the new way, reaching people in different corners of the planet using an array of tools that the community has helped them to develop. Currently, we have people in 13 different countries around the world, and um, the logic behind that um, is, has more to do with where our founders are from than anything else, to be honest. We have three founders. One is German, one is American living in Prague, the Czech Republic, and the other one is Serbian living in the Czech Republic, but especially our Serbian uh, managing director, Sava Tatic. He has lived um, in, in many places around the world and he has close ties to Toronto and Canada as well. So he, has, he just built up a network over the years and years of great people who, were, who just happened to be in, in you know, different places. So when Source Fabric was set up, we, we, at the time, you know, it, was, it, was very, it was very organic in the beginning in terms of, okay, who wants to contribute to 
the code they were making, who wants to build the best possible open source tools. And they happen to know people in Toronto, people in Cluj, in Romania, people in Minsk, for example. And this is really how it all happened. And this is how we grew. And we are very loyal um, organization and you know and people who've worked for us for for years they are very loyal to us as well so we've been able to sustain this level of international spread um, which is actually really benefiting us because our our clients and our partner organizations they're also spread around the world so it's actually easier for us to work on that level because we have people in so many different time zones and speaking so many different languages we as a you know we are now maybe 65 strong and we speak over 20 different languages within the organization this is a huge benefit for working with people who also you know speak various different languages so we have two founders who are working out of prague and one of the founders who's working out of berlin and i think the berliners as we're called um i mean we're there's about 15 of us here in the berlin office and it's maybe 50 50 germans and people from elsewhere as well who've just happened to move to berlin or were in berlin when we met them so we're still very international here in berlin as well but i think the berliners within source or the germans in general within source fabric are the ones who keep things organized <laughs> you know catering to all the stereotypes in the world. Um, I mean, my job as the CEO, I'm in charge of contracts and finances and HR and, you know, keeping things straight and making sure that the, or the organizational um, complexity that we've now created is still not, you know, a burden to us that we're still managing to keep on top of everything. And our head of project who's overseeing our entire project portfolio, he's Germ German as well. And, um, Perhaps there is something about being well organized or getting to the point quickly. I don't know. But um, I think the culture here in Berlin is a little bit more um, German probably as, as compared to Prague. Um, I mean, I love working from Prague. We have quite a lot of exchange between the two offices especially. And, um, I, and I think we all, like vice versa, it's always really great to go over to Prague or to come to here. And in Prague, it's the same thing. There's people from the Czech Republic, but also people from elsewhere. Our CTO, for example, you know, he isn't Czech, but he works out of the Prague office as well. So we are international wherever we go, really. Of course, all of Source Fabric's activities are centered around the products, the software, for making internet radio stations, for live blogging, managing newsrooms, and publishing ebooks. Walk us through some of these tools, and I'm curious to hear about who is using them and, and how. I mean, citizen journalism has been a big thing in the last few years, and it's not going away. I mean, you know, with the, the rise of Twitter and all of those social media tools, everybody now is able to broadcast and to produce content themselves, but they're also willing to do it. And um, this isn't going away. I mean, it might be changing over the next few years and decades as the tools are developing and as, you know, people may, you know, people's attitudes towards it may be changing. But the fact that, Everybody nowadays isn't just a consumer of news, but also a potential producer of news. That's really shaken up the industry. But um, and you know, we we also have a tool called uh, Citizen Desk now, which was used in Africa to report on elections to make sure that the elections happening on the ground were actually done properly, or you know, reporting on it when they weren't done properly. So um, there's a lot of stuff happening, and all and around storytelling as well. We have the short form, you know. 160 character Twitter feed up to long form journalism as well because sometimes people 
are looking for more content, for deeper research, for longer pieces that are not like instant news, but, you know, that provide really quality content. So the forms are changing these days as well. BookType is a tool for collaborative production of books and eBooks. So in an easy way, it's you writing a book in a browser and you can write the book together with other people who are anywhere around the world. Um, so it's a, it's a, um, similar in a, in a sort of collaborative style like Google Docs, for example, but it's spe um, specified and dedicated around the production of books. So everything that you do in there has a book in mind. So then when you, when you press the, you know, print button at the end or the turn, create an, an ebook or a PDF for print, it's already layouted perfectly for, for a book format. Um, it's a fantastic tool and also the, the user range of book type is really wide. We've recently been working with Amnesty International on the production of their annual report and they were using book type as part of their production chain to get all the different collaborators they have as well for, to produce this report um, together and to have a seamless production line for it. And I mean, at the Amnesty International annual report i mean it's 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 a huge document and it's a very important very very important document and it was fantastic working with amnesty international on that project but we also have publishers using it we have individual authors using it we have you know print on demand services using it um anybody who really who is interested in writing a book or having content that can be repurposed as well book type is really great too. you can just you know when when you have a book you just make a copy of that and you can move chapters around however you want and you can translate as you go. So for book production, it's definitely one of the best tools out there right now. Our, our tool called LiveBlog, it's um, very simple. It allows people to live blog any event, whether it's the World Cup, whether it's elections, whether it's the Eurovision Song Contest, um, you know, any live event or any event, if you, if you like, um, where people want to have a constant stream of updated news and updated content, um, you know, that's live blogging. And it's, it's, it has been really popular in years. And again, the popularity is not going down. I think it's the people are very, very used to getting instant content. And sometimes people go to Twitter for that. Live blogging is a means for news portals to keep their readers on their site and provide them with you know their own content i mean you know and obviously with social media embedded in those in those blogging content as well um but it's a way for them to keep them on their site and you know it's and and to have instant instant uh, you know responses to whatever is going on in the world and whether you know any event i mean we've obviously the the terrible events in, in nepal um we reached out to the nepali times and we, you know we we kind of were working with them of course on a pro bono basis as well because we just wanted to help out but uh, they're using lifeblock as well now to report on on the aftermath of the event now and there's still so much that so much information that needs to go out to all the readers and all all the people in nepal and um, this is a good way for them to do that. We've always done a lot of work in, um, in Africa, especially because the situation there um, requires a very special approach and very special expertise. For, for example, um, mobile use in Africa uh, happens on a completely different level than to Europe, for example. Um, but we've, um, our new focus was actually, is actually in recent years has been the Caucasus area. So we're currently doing a pretty large project um, in the South Caucasus between Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, connecting radio communities across these three countries. Um, of course, that's not very easy. And of course, there are many, many 
challenges to the project where, you know, in Africa, sometimes the issues might be around connectivity. Um, but in places like the South, South Caucasus, especially Azerbaijan right now, the political circumstances are making it sometimes very, very difficult to work in places like that. But for us, it's about, you know, offering our tools and, and, and enabling communities who wouldn't otherwise meet um, through the means of radio. Um, you know, it's when we when we designed the project initially, it was like, you know, hip hop fans in different places in the world probably have more in common than people who live next door to each other. So it's about connecting them and, you know, creating communities. And, you know, our, our tools can be used in order to do that. We have a large number of, you know, small bedroom DJs, if you want to call it like that, you know, one people, one people shows who, where there's somebody who has great content and he wants to put something online and really low maintenance and really, you know, getting up on the air really quickly and really uncomplicated. So there's, you know, people doing this out of their bedrooms. There is a larger, larger radio stations, especially in the UK, who are using um, airtime to broadcast. Um, we also have a number of commercial clients, actually, who are using airtime to almost, um, in, a, in a white label sense, then uh, roll out radio stations to their clients as well. Um, we've had festivals using um, airtime to broadcast their program. So the range of users is actually quite wide. Um, we have a, quite a lot of artists working with airtime whenever they're doing, you know, art projects containing radio. Um, so yeah, the, the client spread or the user spread really is, is really quite wide. The choice of making open source software for journalism, especially in the context of the for-profit daughter company, the non-profit uh, parent company, uh, how do you guys manage this? For, for us, there is really no other way than going open source um, for many different reasons. Um, when we work with organizations, for example, we want to enable them as much as possible to look after their tools themselves. So when we're working with newsrooms, for example, we're currently you know, working with the Australian Press Association. Um, we are working with their developers in-house as well on the further development of the tool Superdesk that we're currently working together in conjunction. And for us, it's very important that our clients can also get to the very, very deep kernel of the code and make alterations there themselves and that they ultimately own the code as well. Um, what you, you know, People are very used to paying huge amounts for license fees for tools that they ultimately never own. And when a tool gets discontinued, they're really left stranded. And uh, especially when online journalism came about 20 years ago or so, um, a lot of traditional print journalists and print you know, news outlets suddenly were faced with, oh my God, we need to have an online presence as well, because that seems to be what everybody else is doing. So they build websites. And at the time, the tools weren't really available to build websites that really catered for journalism. So they built something, and over the years, they added functionalities here and there, but because it was usually closed-source stuff that they were working with, what they ended up then after 20 years were really Frankenstein-type monsters with a little bit of code from here, a little bit of code from there. It was all held together by goodwill and chewing gum, it felt sometimes at times. And because, because the tools weren't really really working together and talking to each other, the tools really got really big and monstrous, but really weren't working in their favor anymore. And with open source, you simply have much more flexibility working with the code and with APIs from other codes. And ultimately, as, as the user of an online, of an open source tool, 
you get to really work with it the way you want. And it allows us as well to really build a global community of users who are all contributing in their own different ways to the further development of our tools. I mean, in that sense, they aren't really just our tools. We are the custodians of the code, but we have code contributions from all over the world. And really anybody who is using our tools is contributing to making these tools better. And any contributions that are, you know, being done from a paying client in Switzerland, ultimately, you know, people from in Africa can use them as well and vice versa as well. We have huge inno in innovation projects happening in various different corners of the world that then our European clients, for example, are making use of. So it's, it's building a, tr a true and genuine community of people and enabling them to do with the tools what they want to be doing. Um, every, all of our code is on GitHub. And we always actively invite other developers and anybody else who's interested in any kind of contribution to us, um, whether it's code contributions, whether it's translations, documentation. There are so many ways to get involved with us. And um, we, it, it, it takes a lot of work, actually, to grow a community. And this is something that for 2015 and 16, we definitely have on our organizational roadmap to put more emphasis on that um, because we all know that you know, WordPress is to some extent only as good as it is because there are thousands and thousands of developers around the world who can work with pro with WordPress. Um, whether or not the tool is the right one for, you know, all the cases that it's being used in, but just knowing that there are so many people who can work with WordPress um, just makes it very interesting and very appealing. And um, in that sense, we we're trying to do the same, obviously, you know, um, on a much smaller scale right now. But any any code contributor, anybody who wants to get involved with Source Fabric is more than welcome. And um, we we have uh, we we're sending our developers out and about as much as we can to speak at, re at technical conferences and to to raise interest there. We're going to media development conferences. Um, you know, we, there are so many points for us to get attached to other communities and other other conferences uh, that we're trying to make the most of it but you know there is limited resources in our organization because when we you know if we send 10 people out to do this on a regular basis then <laughs> development slows down or something like that but um we're trying to be as open as possible in our communication we're trying to be really transparent with documentation and as i said putting everything on github but um we always obviously welcome much more, many more contributions on any level. To be honest, a lot of the times people are using our tools without us even knowing about it. Um, a few years ago, we had one of the largest Brazilian news outlets uh, reaching out to us saying, hey, we've been using Newscoop for years. It's a fantastic tool, but our um, hosting infrastructure has completely broken down. Can we move over to you? Can you, you know, host our, our site? And can we do some further development with you? And we were like, yeah, sure, why not? And then we looked into it, into this and they have millions and millions of hit, hits each month. They're a huge Brazilian news outlet and we didn't even know that they were using Newscoop and they were loving it so much. So um, we love it when that happens, of course. <laughs> and this is the beauty of open source. I mean, our tools are out there for anybody to use. And if people want to come back to us and whether they want us to host it, to provide support, to commission feature development, to do implementation work, to build it into other existing infrastructures, we can do that. I mean, we are... We're not the only ones who can work with our tools, but we're probably the better ones because, you know, we're the custodians of it. It was, you know, they were our babies. Um, but we want them to be out there, to be open and to fly and then good stuff coming back to us. Um, this is definitely one of the benefits as well for open source. I mean, 
any criticism you can have for open source, but then there are probably 10 times as many criticisms you can have for closed source things. I mean, paying huge amounts of license fees for tools that do one thing, um, I don't know, and then they get discontinued after a while and you're, as I said, you're stranded with something that you've you, you've you know, really re become reliant upon, but then a company says, well, we're discontinuing that tool, good luck with your future. And in our case, should we ever, you know, in 50 years down the line, cease to exist or should we ever decide to do something else with our tools, our users can always just take whatever is there and then keep going with it. So they're not reliant on us as a provider as such, but we are all working together as a community to make things better and to keep making things better. So the sources of income are, again, spread across nonprofit, for-profit. So um, on nonprofit activities, we sometimes get funded from larger funders to go out, for example, to the South Caucasus or to Africa and to implement a, our tools on the ground so to you know there's there's five people who want to get together as a news organization and we go out there we train them we get them up and running with our tools because we want them to use it um, and also them to keep developing it so we go out there and we we, we train the people on the ground we provide um, custom documentation for them as well and then you know we implement our solutions sometimes um, their, their instances are hosted with us. Sometimes they're self-hosted. If they're hosted with us, of course, then that's an income for us. Um, we can provide support. We can provide um, just like a service agency. If you like, we're you know, a media agency. We can provide consultancy. We can provide training, bespoke development, um, customizations, those type of, types of things. Um, and you know, the, the area of income is actually quite wide. And it's... Sometimes there are differences between nonprofit and for-profit activities, and sometimes they are really not. Um, but these are the types of these are the types of uh, channels, I would say, that um, we make money with. So you've existed for five years. You're busy in so many places, so many different communities in the world. Uh, what are your guiding principles? Your mission going forward. We really believe in journalism and we really believe in books, whatever shape or form they take, but people will always be interested in stories and in great content. And our contribution to that is creating the best possible open source tools for other people to tell their stories. And we strongly, strongly believe that journalism has a future, that printed books also have a future, that radio has a future. And, you know, our code is our contribution to the development of, you know, of these art forms. Fabian Reiner is COO of Source Fabric, based in Berlin. Listening to Source Code Berlin, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. From media and communication to gaming and education. Back in the spring, someone at Wikimedia Deutschland showed me some really fun and different looking augmented reality games for mobile devices. And when I looked up the company that made them, I learned about Toy Wheel, and that led me to its interesting founder, Evgeny Kouris, who had a lot to say not just about business, but about how we learn and how we play games. So naturally, I went to go talk to him at the company's headquarters in Berlin.
Hi, I'm Evgeny. Uh, I'm an artist and entrepreneur. From my background as an artist, um, playing in a band and also a computer engineer, I was always looking at the business as something which helps you to materialize your vision and build something uh, for people, something impactful and something which changes the world. And I started looking at the startup as a vehicle for that back in really um, 2007 to 2010, as I was a consultant um, for big corporations still. And I um, had a very, very lucky experience of um, doing some uh, startups uh, with some musicians and friends from me as I was uh, on tour with the band. Yeah. And then um, that drove me to the um, more and more critical question, how to use the startup uh, business as a vehicle to um, change the way education works and uh, connect digital and physical worlds in a meaningful way. Um, because I saw a lot of things coming on the digital side and I thought, hmm, if I would have... Uh, like children, then where were they going? Like to school, where, 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 where is the right place for them to be, to be kind of, um, learning the right things. And I happen to meet a lot of social entrepreneurs these days. So in parallel to my, uh, consulting and artistic career, I was like researching and trying to help with my knowledge, um, in this social entrepreneurship domain. And that's how it all started, uh, with the, basically with the assumption that a startup as a vehicle could help you um, get the right resources, the best people in the world to work on an awesome vision uh, to equip kids with roots and, and, and wings. That was the original vision and that um, never changed. But the way I look at the tools and how you would do it probably over the several pivots we've done with the business and the company changed quite a lot. Gaming is a very wide and tricky industry. I'm thinking here of all the games out there that just keep you playing for the sake of playing versus those that may actually want to teach you or unlock some talent or knowledge that exists within you. How did you guys as a company navigate this complex world and where has it taken you? I think this is a, a, a non-very logical step uh, and I actually never thought that it would end up with gaming because as we were starting we were saying um, we actually want to connect physical and digital worlds we want to avoid game mechanics uh, by using digital toys as a like construct where you have play patterns um, where you have real world and and less the gamified world but we ended up um, with a lot of workshops we've done with children and with a lot of um, insights we've done with the tests of the product uh, early on we recognize that the world is, um, has changed dramatically and that the new generation looks at things very, very different, okay. differently. And um, that we, we need to find the way to bring um, the ma message we want to bring across in the media which they consume. Mm -hmm. And we need to make them um, not the consumers, though. So the message is basically reversing the way they consume media in, 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 in the discoverer. So they should, in, in my view, um, become uh, somebody who discovers the relevant content. And that's the, the core essential uh, message I, I have for the education systems uh, across the globe. Right now, everybody's trying to push people into the 
sort of consumption mode. And the more technology we we create, the more uh, stream news feeds and all kind of things we create, um, it will all tell you, I have relevant data for you. You just need to consume. But I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's very important to understand that for the real uh, uh, people education and the way of development, like developing yourself and developing your mensch kind sort of, then you need to be a discoverer, you need to be a creator. And that's how we understood that for achieving that goal, we need to create something like a tool which would allow people to create things instead of just consuming it. And gaming was a very um, interesting. Um, we just at, at the end of the day understood that when a, more than one and a half billion people play games right now, it's sort of becoming a medium for anyone and everyone, especially in the younger generation. Almost no one can just escape this. As YouTube was at some point uh, very, very you know fundamental for for the culture and uh, for the media. Uh, consumption, distribution, everything. We believe that game games uh, with the new rise of mobile devices, availability of cheap devices, um, availability of internet and app stores and the whole ecosystem created a huge um, new culture uh, which moves out of indie towards mainstream. Right. And uh, from like the Quake and Doom, you know, really, really violent games towards casual games which you can play every day between the rides, like... Candy Crush and stuff, and that's how we ended up um, uh, building uh, the first augmented reality games because that was the first sort of step towards connecting both universes. And now we're working on a game technology platform, uh, which is called Game Wheel, where um, our goal is to make game production affordable and reachable to anyone, and ultimately building a self-service tool similar to YouTube, where people could just log in and create a quick version of a game which I like and without knowing anything how to code, how the game mechanics work and just share it and um, right now we focus on businesses but yeah. over time we believe that will become the tool for, for game creation. Let's talk about how this tool works. Uh, what do you guys do? What does it leave for the user to do? I mean tell us about a platform that makes it possible for someone to create a game. That's a fundamental question of what to change and I, I, I would describe it as a funnel sort of like uh, of three levels then um, on, on the top you have like all options a developer could have if you would be you know a developer a game developer obviously you you would have all the ideas on mind say ah, I want to have a jump and run game mm -hmm. and I want to have uh, levels and I want to have I want I, I want to be like rescuing somebody. I want to have this mission, and this is something you would think of, and then you would just develop graphics and and code everything. Um, but that's not like possible that everyone would do that kind of like deep development work. So the next level would be sort of um, like a designer. Like there, there are tools for designers like Construct or Unity, which allow you obviously with less knowledge of the whole rendering and the whole um, idea how the um, sprites work and the development uh, work you can buy some modules put them together and you still will need code mm -hmm. you still need to understand how that all runs how it how you can test it how you build levels and this is the second level of this funnel and then we actually at the third level 
where where we want people with no knowledge uh, of development skills or game types or um, they we want them to be inspired by by the amount of games uh, mechanics which which are out there yeah. and want them to change the graphics um, to make the game um, look how they would like to have yeah. it look so basically reskin it we want them to have meta control of the parameters saying making it uh, slower or faster and uh, making it more complex or or easy to approach um we want them to adapt the audience they would like to to share it with so they actually would love to play this game and um we so we saw like a huge increase um on on, on time we people spend with mobile yeah. and um realizing that actually the whole um the way you build reach the people on mobile is, is is to give them a game which uh, um, encompasses your message instead of just giving them um, something like an advertising uh, or a video which they have to watch yes. um, and that's common, yeah. yeah and that's that's the, the the future of how we want to see the game to be used as a tool uh, to actually um, yeah the, to to actually let you discover the message you you hidden in the game or let you understand how a particular product works for a game or um and it, it's it's applicable to all different industries um advertising which we focused on right now education healthcare all kind of different um uh, for example um people who have difficulties of writing and understanding how like letters uh work and you you need a lot of different games which you normally put on paper like there are a lot of paper based games where uh, people play, um, especially younger kids play, to actually focus on learning um, how to overcome that disease. And um, I think this kind of um, game is normally not a very complex game, but there are a lot of different aspects of why people use particular puzzle games or particular matching games to let um, kids understand the vocabulary or understand the, how the letter or the sentence comes together and this kind of mechanics if we would have if we would have a tool for the um for the experts in in this kind of field then they could use the game and they can program it themselves instead of putting things on paper and that would reach much more people right now right. than obviously paper could do and also in a format which is more um easy to share and consume so that's kind of the uh, one of the uh, game. Another like example, uh, I guess, um, and we we using a lot of um, ideas around how to engage with a brand uh, generally. So it's a different field, but um, the question is, people try to like share messages, videos, everything, uh, content, marketing ideas, like everything to to give him a particular message um, of the brand or product. And at the end of the day, it comes down to the question of how much time you spend with a brand. Do you react to actions which people would like to, um, you know, to share? And um, these are all the things which a game is very easy to build around. And um, you could build matching games, puzzle games, all kind of funny games which are very short and quick and um, share them with people, um, you can do an event game where to invite people to events or to understand which kind of places are relevant. So I guess this all comes down 
to the question of how to map all kind of mechanics to the particular usage of this yeah. and particular action you would like to have. That's how we structure this whole process. So you always start with like a goal or a, a, a mission you, you'd like to hit. Yeah. Then we propose you a couple of mechanics mm -hmm. which we think are uh, there to solve that. Yeah. And then you have lined up um, with a particular action and then all these kind of um, game-based campaigns, how we call them, they, they could be run like that. And um, yeah, this is this is something we made very, very um, good experience with because it's very engaging and it's it's just the way um, people love to, to use mobile for, for doing that kind of stuff. Let's talk about models. Uh, in the world of gaming, the most followed way of earning an income is the one where the game is free, but then... As you play, it is a constant attempt to get you to buy things. Everyone, I think, is familiar with this. How do you approach gaming when it comes to earning an income and growing a business? I think our like model is very different from that. But to step back a little bit, indeed, you, you mentioned the free-to-play games, which is a subdominant model of the monetization for all the game publishers right now, which is right. more than 85% or 90% of like all the games are monetized like that, I guess. Yeah. yeah, you end up paying for skills or for bullets or for clothes or anything. And um, it's interesting always to observe the, the charts um, on, on iOS or Android. You always see the, the pay charts and you see the, the, the charts with the highest revenue. And it's very interesting to observe, but the, the games on the, the paid charts um, are always very different from the ones with the highest revenue. Actually, now the same, because the, the games with the highest revenue are also free games. Hmm. And that's something you just need to be aware of, that most of the revenue is just really owned with the free games, because they have a huge install basis, and they figure out how to define the mechanics where people will spend money in-game instead of... Um, actually buying the game in the old days you you just you know bought the game once paid 50 dollars or something yeah, for yeah. a really good game and then you just had it forever yeah. and right now people end up spending much more than that on average yeah. uh, for really games like cash of crowns or something mm -hmm. and um it's it's really interesting um but that's not something we we do because our goal is never um to keep the the people as long as possible in the game, but rather to let them have a fun engaging experience and then we, we actually leave them to another landing page or uh, to another experience, a physical product or anything we, we, the goal um, of the campaign is about. So I guess we see game more as sort of a quick engaging interactive format similar to video. Mm -hmm. So we, we see that more as a next step of engagement uh, on mobile yeah. similar like video um, became and at some point better than graphic uh, which are animated or like just simple graphics uh, or simple text so it's just the evolution of how that will all go and in the future we see that coming with AR and VR quite like naturally so um, that's why we started the first games we released with Toy Wheel um, it was an augmented reality driving game for children from 6 to 8 and that actually um, the idea there was also mm, to not use any game mechanics which would be addictive at all mm -hmm. so it was a paid and a free version and if you love the game you, you pay for it once and it's yours mm -hmm. and it's very similar to 
how real world toys work for little children. I think that's really the best mechanics. Uh, um, but of course, it's less from the. That's exactly the thing from the business perspective. It's less powerful and it's probably less scalable. And um, we ended up deciding to uh, pivot from that model, um, not because the model is wrong, but because um, we wanted to have much more, much more ability and much more, actually, resources to build real cool tools where where uh, children and people could just you know, change the game, build their own levels, create a game. But to build these kind of tools, you need much more capital investment. And uh, that's where, to come back to the original um, model, that's where the startup vehicle is actually, is really great for, because um, for, for that vehicle, you could build a business uh, based on a really good idea, build a great team. Um, and then um, you, you could start like, using that technology um, outside of the core business scope to, um, for example, give uh, free access to educational institutions, to give free access to all kind of areas where you think that the tool could be useful, but you don't want to monetize it with. And I guess that's, that's where the biggest advantage of the digital economy is visible, where you have access to technology for free. Like Skype changed the way people talk to each other around the globe. It's free, so it has uh, never been possible to think of, of something like that. Um, you know, 50 years ago, that you would be able to free, uh, yeah. freely talk to, to people around the globe. And I mean, um, that's how we see technology really empowering people. But it's on the other uh, side as well, creating a dependency which we need to manage as a society. Mm -hmm. And that's where the education um, and the the point I was mentioning before comes into place where you need to be consciously aware of what you're using, why you're using it for, and that's where the educational system have to have much more understanding of the digital economy and digital tools themselves yes. uh, to be able to teach it. Um, you need to really, really well understand it. And that's, I think, the challenge of our time. The, the tech is developing so quickly um, and the next step will be AR and VR. And, and I mean, how... Um, how do you think uh, teachers who learned um, how to teach um, 10 years ago can um, know that stuff which has appeared yeah. and teach that forward? And um, obviously kids have much better access to that kind of stuff already. And people um, need to learn and to cope with that. This is a huge, fast um, development, um, big challenge, but also huge opportunity. And um, we see ourselves like the 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 central tool where uh, people would think of oh I, I could create a game um like a word document right now uh i could go to game well and create a game and that doesn't require any particular skills um just something i could do and um i think a lot of tools like that exist already for other media and just totally makes sense to do it for game for ar game for vr game anything we are, as a, as a world, only starting to understand the impact and effect of gaming on us as adults, as children. Might this not be a risk, betting it all on gaming, counting on the tablet or the mobile phone to teach things? Couldn't this do more harm than good? When it comes to engaging with um, students, children, then any tool which would help engaging to achieve a particular mission or goal is, is, is great. As long 
as it's not taking all the attention away from the original goal why somebody created the game and the purpose of that game and if the game like Minecraft or a game like um, for example there are some modules which teach you coding mm -hmm. um, if these are used and, um, um, and there are a lot of games like that exist right now to teach coding um, then it's actually great um, if the game itself becomes sort of the the purpose of that play then I guess it's still fun and you still can learn a lot of things if you ask questions about what the experience was and why did you do particular things but then you need a person around you who cares about what you do and if parents don't have time for that or don't you know friends or parents if the social environment doesn't have time or understanding for what is happening then people turn tend to start isolating themselves and say it's much easier for me to you know to build a character virtually and to communicate with my virtual characters over Skype or my friends which I never met over Skype right now and that turned yeah it can can harm the social sort of skills and development but um, if, if the surrounding and teachers um, for example use something like virtual reality cardboards and do like a game for a couple of minutes to travel to another galaxy and imagine and talk about what they've you know just built and then it's a completely different thing so i guess it's really the question about how you use it and not wherever you're going to use it and um you, technology can be very empowering but of course can be also very very addictive and and self directed and um the only thing i i just want to end up with this kind of this topic is that we from a tech community always say everything which is new is great because we're so enthusiastic about the whole progress yes. and it's just partially not true um, I think it's just part of the whole community trying to evangelize new things uh, but for the people you know, people generally it's not always a new thing is a good thing right. because you need to understand how to use it yes. to be create uh, to create value for the good and sometimes it just actually creates the value for just several people Yes. and um, the value for the rest is not very well put in this equation um, and that's what I just want to be um, you know highlighting saying like wait uh, it's always still important to think so don't 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 trust too much that the ones who is trying to sell you uh, always wants you to be uh, getting value out of that uh, sometimes it's they just want to be having users and um, yeah. that's a part of the game one simple but fundamental question how do you balance your business goals and your societal goals? I think it's always a great... The, I, th I learned about great companies. They always have a great mission mm -hmm. and, and vision. Otherwise, you can't really build something amazing. And um, But understanding the business uh, is fundamental to be successful in this sort of system. If you want to be part of a system, and I think... I became like a huge fan of Rockefeller from that perspective. At some point, I was reading a lot of his sort of books and biography because that was sort of the first uh, entrepreneur who created the one billion dollar business, yes, right? An empire. Yeah, that yeah, was the first one. We never had one before. So I looked at um, this guy and thought it's kind of interesting. 
everybody talks about billion dollar businesses and that was the first person in the world who actually just did it you know without reading books about how to do it and um if you look at what he's done um it's kind of amazing because he's um he started with earning very little salary but he was still documenting every cent he spent for charity or for all kind of things around education he built columbia university everything like he he was documenting every little moment um and he started with i think seven or six percent of his um, um income to spend on charity with hundred dollar income yes. and with a couple of you know billions uh, dollar um um you have i think he had like 11.2 percent or something like that so he was very much uh he was very very detailed and very precise in documentation of all this spent and i found it very very interesting to see how the values never changed in the way he did look at it so he always had this kind of assumption of if you have a chance to create value for the mankind and create something meaningful as a business always create something meaningful as a business and then always think of how can you give away something of that wealth to people who actually would need it and do it from the very very first day on do it with what you can mm -hmm. don't don't think of that as a step in in the future and then it never never starts right. and i think if everybody would sort of follow that advice at the end um then you end up with having no issue of setting up a really successful business that's how i ended up with that conclusion after this whole philosophy of yeah. questions saying actually the best thing i could do with my skills and all everything um, i learned is to find the greatest people on earth to create the best products and the best company and everything around that to fulfill that mission and then share part of that um with the people who actually would need it and would never get success uh, access to that mm -hmm. and um, probably every startup who, which is successful should have a non-profit arm uh, organization or anything around that to power the rest of the world from that kind of knowledge right to give okay. access to education resources i think um, in the enterprise world it's called <laughs> corporate social responsibility i think uh, yes 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 csr maybe it's where where it comes from <laughs> but for me it's not necessarily even part of the company sort of business design per se it's part of the people's minds i think so i guess um building as a startup founder and ceo you just have that goal to be successful as a startup and and you want your team to have all the resources on earth to make what they are great at and you you really you know that's the deterministic goal it's it's where where um, a lot of people are intelligent but not all people have the power to survive and while going for all these crises is you naturally would have as a startup and you fail several times and you stand up you fail and you stand up and it's all this constant process i think every startup on the inside is a little bit broke and on the outside like looks a little bit polished mm -hmm. and that's you know how every big i'd say um construction uh looks like as well like a lot of all kind of these issues which you never thought of and you always run out of time and money and if you're <laughs> successful you thought of all these things and have buffers yeah. and uh, if you're not then construction sometimes stops and um 
and we built things for ages so we should know how to build airports in berlin as well <laughs> and you know i don't want to make this feral but <laughs> some things just are more difficult to control and you other can imagine although we built several airports in, in already but i'll know sometimes you fail so i think nobody nobody is really um protected against that so i think what what is really important is not to forget i guess the that the, what you're doing it for like the purpose why you started and constantly try to look at the mirror look in the mirror and like to re recognize who are you yeah. in terms of what what are you doing here and why you're doing for And that's part probably of this sort of mission to to help um, uh, build this kind of I don't know a lot of uh, new terms like uh, the circle economy or right. the social economy or like all kind of this systematic approaches how to describe this kind of new economy um, misfit economy another one mm -hmm. um, beautiful disruptive. book yeah. disruptive yeah. and. Um, At the end of the day, it comes down to knowing how to set up a great business and not knowing how to set up a great business and then knowing how to use the resources for something good and not knowing. And it doesn't matter how much. It just probably matters that you think of both sides. Do you think it is a coincidence or luck that Berlin is a place that attracts so many creative pioneers who started businesses with such an array of goals, including the social impact dynamic? I think Berlin is not a coincidence. I think that's a big part of a big plan. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, it has historical reasons why Berlin is such a unique place right now. Probably the only capital without real capital. Mm. <laughs> And with a lot of kind of um, opportunities to build new things and um, I guess the key reason for the startup itself to start up a business in Berlin and not somewhere else is the um, easiness to get people to Berlin if you want to get people to work with you for you or on your idea it's much easier to say oh come to Berlin oh awesome I like Berlin yeah. that's always a, an answer and it doesn't matter where people are They can be in, in Australia, they can be in London, they can be in Timbuktu or Uganda or whatever. Like anywhere you ask, people would say, oh, awesome, Berlin, I, I wanted to go there. And, or I'm, I'm, I'm actually happy uh, to be there. And I think that's the real, at the end, reason. Mm. It's a dynamic which just happened to be there because it was cheap originally. Mm -hmm. And then people start feeling here the freedom of setting up new things, creating new things. Um, then, of course, prices will go up and the whole space will change. But the mentality of um, failure um, here is actually nice because nobody expects you to be successful in Berlin somehow. I, I'm just I'm just not trying to make fun of Berlin. I think I'm a really huge fan of Berlin. I'm just saying that if you go to Silicon Valley with an idea and Silicon Valley is a space where people um, have like 40 plus years of experience setting up startups and for them um, the the amount of knowledge and know-how you would need there to be standing out is tremendous the amount of um, knowledge and know-how you need here to start up a business is I think very little compared to Silicon Valley and therefore the quality the average quality is also much lower because you just have less experience but the incremental increase of experience and acceleration is 
factors higher because people have so much potential and there is so much resources lying around nobody's using it so much space you could use and build for and this is i think all just there for creative people who want to build things it's a perfect playground to build things and nobody really prevents you from doing anything here and there are little places in the world where you have so so central location Mm -hmm. you can bring all people you want to but you have all the resources around you which you can just literally grab and use and um, that's that's a very interesting ecosystem finally getting back to the social impact of your game creation platform how do you see game wheel developing over time I think right now as we work mostly with businesses um, trying to help brands and agencies to produce something which they thought they can't produce in a time frame or the budget they have we want um, parts of that tool to be kind of accessible to anyone over the years so um, as as we grow and as everything comes together we want that kind of tool to be ready to use for any um, person who just wants to build a game yeah. and not just brands who um, right now have want to have like a premium way of um, using mobile interactive media and um, we believe that will be democratized like the whole area will will see also um, more tools like that helping to use the power of gaming for a particular cause and not as a mean to play but actually for a particular cause and um, that's where we hope to be the central yeah. uh, place and that's why we built uh, game as a game tech platform for uh, anyone so i think that's that's where we we're going to with our vision and ultimately that would um, enable people to be creating their own games creating their own mechanics their own worlds and in in with this media instead of just consuming yes and that's part of the bigger mission on the way to enable creativity in this whole system and using the tools um, for people's good and not just necessarily for bringing them into this addicted uh, state of everything is pre-produced and you just need to need to run it and it works and then you can stay there forever it's 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 part of that big mission and uh, belief that the technology can be used in a good way evgeny kuris is founder and ceo of toy wheel and co-founder of game wheel based in berlin So there you have it, a sample of two experienced voices involved in the running of a business who take their role in society quite seriously. So seriously, they've got the business model and communities to prove it. Will they succeed at making the world a better place without being too much of a fanboy? I think so. Source Code Berlin is a Wikimedia Deutschland production. If you like this program or would like to hear more, go to sourcecode.berlin or find us on Facebook, Twitter, SRC Code Berlin. While you're there, leave us a constructive comment. That is what makes this a more active new media conversation. Music on today's program was by Soulepont and Ghost by Nature, both of which you can find on the free music archive published under CC licenses. 
This show is published under a CCBYSA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening.